So I had to go out for a walk just to record this intro because it is one of my favorite people on the planet. And this podcast is how to embrace pain to avoid suffering. And as somebody who has lived through a lot of pain, the concept blows my mind about what we cover, what he talks about, how he shares. This is a keynote at our private event in Montana and Brian brought down the house and every single person in the room took something from this talk and put it into practice. Because when you learn how to embrace pain, to avoid suffering, to gain freedom, everything happens. And so you don't get stuck, you get moved. And pain is required. Growing muscles, going for runs, even sometimes going on a diet, but it allows us to push our capacity. It allows us to get stronger and pain is not a bad thing. So I want you to listen to this podcast, to this story of a man who had his arm ripped off as a child. And I will let the podcast tell you the rest of it. But I want you to choose your pain or suffering will choose you. And he gets into all of that in today's episode. So have a listen and let's get into it. Are you ready to ethically scale your business? Good. Because this is the Mind of George podcast where relationships beat algorithms and depth is the only direction when it comes to ethically scaling your business. Each Monday and Friday, I'll be the guy between your ears in the hoodie and pink shoes guiding you home, giving you the tools to extract, honor, and amplify your genius so you can be the light for your customers. Sound fabulous? Cool. Let's get into the episode. Uh, wow, it feels good to be on a stage. Um, God, like honestly, this is the fourth time on an in-person stage in the last year. Uh, and this is one of my happiest places on the planet uh, because I get to pour my soul into audiences. And this is, uh, this is quite a treat. So when George asked me to come, as he and I built our relationship, uh, it was a no-brainer. So uh, what was cool, I wish I could stay longer. I was actually supposed to be speaking again in Scottsdale tomorrow in person and that event just got canceled last minute. So I'm still leaving right after this, but I'm, I'm excited to be here for this next period of time. And I don't even know what to do with that intro. Uh, thank you. Uh, the other thing that I think is really interesting, and you all are, I think, in an amazing place. I, I don't think, I know you are. Uh, it is rare that I can go to an event and the room is so warmed up like this in your bodies, ready to listen, ready to feel, ready to think. And that is such a unique thing in events. And I know you know that, which is why you're here. But George, I just have to pay it forward, man. You're, you're the man and you got me ready, so here we go. All right, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk for about an hour um, and then we're gonna open up for some Q&A uh, and we're gonna cover a few different things. But if, if there's literally six words that you remember from this entire time that I'm talking, I want you to write these down. These are words that guide my life. Embrace pain, avoid suffering, Gain freedom. Embrace pain. Avoid suffering. Gain freedom. I want you all to close your eyes for just a minute. I'll tell you when to reopen them. I want you to imagine going to a store, getting everything you need, but you're kind of in a rush. You've got a lot to do for your day. You've got to get home, worry about what you're making for dinner for the kids. You've got a big day at the office. You're pretty stressed. 
you get up to the checkout line and there's like 10 people in every single line. You're feeling a little bit defeated right out of the gate, not really knowing what to do with that. You get in one line and it seems to be the fastest moving line and then of course when you get in it, it stops. So you wait another couple of minutes and you notice every other line is moving faster so you switch and then inevitably what happens, that line stops. And this happens three or four more times, you just get delayed, 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 and you can't really understand why, but checking out takes 20, 30 minutes. It's your, your whole day is just off to a bad start. Now I want you to imagine a tangential experience. What if you went to a store and you had a very successful shopping trip? You got everything you needed, it was super easy. Checkout was easy. You walk outside, you feel the warmth of the sun on your skin, you feel the breeze. You start looking around and looking up as you're walking back to your car. You see how beautiful the world is, you're excited about getting on with the rest of your day. And as you walk up to your car, you turn your head and see a truck barreling 40 miles an hour right at you with no time to react. Go ahead and open your eyes. That's where this portion of my story begins. My mom, my brother, and I went to our local Walmart to get a one-inch paintbrush. And it was great. We got through, it was smooth, we got through checkout, and of course, I've always had an excitement and vigor for life. I was the first one in the car. I wanted to get home and put that paintbrush to use. Now, this was back in the days before they had key fobs. So I was the first one in the car, but I had to wait for my mom and my brother, who were three or four feet behind me, to catch up to the car, have her stick her key in the door, turn it so we could get in and on go with our way. And as we were standing there, a truck pulls up in front of the store. And the driver and middle passenger park and get out. And the passenger all the way to the right feels the truck moving backwards. So we did what any one of us would do. Scoot over, put his foot on the brake, but he instead hit the gas. Combination of shock and force threw him up onto the steering wheel, threw him up onto the dashboard, and before you know it, he's catapulting across the parking lot 40 miles an hour right at us with no time to react. Now we're in an end spot. So he goes up and over the median, up and over the tree in the median, hits our car, knocks me over, runs over me diagonally, tears my spleen, leaves a tire track scar in my stomach, and continues on to sever my left arm completely from my body. So there I am laying on a 115 degree day on the parking lot in Phoenix, Arizona. My mom and brother watched the entire thing happen, and they look up and they see my arm laying 10 feet away in the parking lot. Now fortunately for me, that first story I told you about envisioning getting stuck in line happened to our guardian angel. It was a nurse who was walking out of the store right when this happened, and she knew immediately why she was delayed. She saw the literal life and limb scenario in front of her, and she rushed immediately into action. She came over and she stopped the bleeding on the main wound and saved my life, and she instructed some innocent bystanders to run inside, grab a cooler, fill it with ice, and get my detached arm on ice in the cooler within minutes. To give me a chance of having my arm reattached. I'm forever indebted to this woman because in that moment she chose to take action, then to turn a blind eye and just go on with her day, even though she'd already been delayed significantly. Had she not done that, I either wouldn't be here with you today, or I'd be here with you today with a cleaned up stump. That's just the reality. Now I know a lot of you probably were not expecting it to go there today. I realize I have a very, very unique story. But what I've also learned in all of my time at doing this is that we all have unique stories. 
What's important is that we pause and become aware of the lessons that we can extract from those stories and then become intentional with how do we apply them in our lives. And we all have the ability to do that. We also have the ability to tap into the collective wisdom of other people's stories and shorten our own curve to learning. So I'm gonna share with you two primary lessons and then we're gonna unpack a few things. The first lesson I learned was I learned not to get stuck by what has happened to me, but instead get moved by what I can do with it. And this lesson came in when I was laying in the hospital bed feeling sorry for myself at seven years old. Thinking to myself, why me? Why is this happening to me? What's the rest of my life gonna look like? And yes, believe it or not, a seven-year-old is capable of those thoughts. 48 hours, I felt like I was in a fog. I felt like it was a dream. I didn't think it was real, and I woke up, and all of a sudden, I felt badly. And then a couple of days went by, and we started to realize that all of the other families in the ICU kept coming up to us, saying, we're so sorry for what happened to you. We're so sorry for what happened to you. Can't even believe it. This is the craziest story. Let us know what we can do to help. Anything, just tell us anything we can do to help. And then come to find out that their kid is laying in the hospital bed next to me in the ICU with a terminal illness that doesn't know if they're going to live for another 30 days. Other than the immediate threat to my life, and at that moment still not knowing whether or not I would have a successful reattachment on my arm, 24 surgeries, years of recovery, lots of things that actually attributed to where I am today to live happy, healthy, and productive and stand in front of you, many of those kids in the ICU never made it out. Perspective points us at what's important. So that first lesson, learning not to get stuck by what is happening, but instead get moved by what I can do with it, came from the ability that I realized that I was gonna have the opportunity to live. I might have the opportunity to have full function of my arm. And so that's how I keep that in perspective. The second lesson I learned, and this is where we're gonna spend most of our time today, came not right away. In fact, I didn't realize it until far later in life. You see, at six, or at seven, eight, nine, 10, and 11, 12 years old, Although I was the one having surgeries to me, although I was the one having to put in all of the process through occupational and physical therapy, although I was having to figure out how to tie my shoe with one hand, button my pants with one hand while I'm trying to regain use of another, right? I was also very much in a fog because I was being guided through the process. My parents, however, were not in a fog. They were intimately aware of the unceasing medical treatments, years of physical therapy, and the idea of seeing their son grow up, grow up without the use of his left arm was a source of great potential suffering for them. So they willed themselves day in and day out to do what was necessary, what was tough, to embrace all the pains required to strengthen and heal me. So whether it was intentional or not, what they did was they ingrained in me a philosophy and a way of living which was to embrace pain to avoid suffering. And I believe when this is done correctly, that's also where we gain freedom. So it's these two lessons that I use primarily to overcome not only this unique injury, how my business partners and I scaled our last business to over 15 million with the span of a decade, and now how as a human behavior and performance coach, I flipped that on its head to help individuals and organizations just like you become more aware, more intentional, and who they already are, their most authentic selves. You see, I believe this is when the door starts to crack to perspective, motivation, and direction. This is literally where magic starts to happen. This is where people can have joy, freedom, and fulfillment holistically enter into their lives. And that's why all of our organizations are on a mission to impact a billion lives by 2045, because if we can effectively reduce the level of suffering on this planet, allow people to experience joy, freedom, and fulfillment, allow the world to recognize that vulnerability and authenticity, which are the glue that binds human connection, 
can now be in the forefront of our conversations and that people can not only stand on their own two feet, confident and convicted in exactly who they are, but knowing that the world is not only going to accept them, but appreciate them for exactly who they are. So for the next 30, 45 minutes, we're gonna unpack how to acknowledge the suffering you choose to avoid, how to identify the pains that we tend to avoid and learn to embrace them, and how to establish this idea of embracing pain in all areas of our life. We're also going to talk a little bit about some things that often get in our way, things that keep us from moving forward and doing these things. And we're gonna really unpack this concept of fear and failure and how they actually can also work to our benefit. So what's important when we look at this is that we need to understand what is pain and what is suffering. The world literally tells us to reduce, eliminate, or avoid pain. And it makes sense. It's kind of a natural evolutionary response to survival way back when, right? Like we don't like it. Pain sucks. We all know what it feels like, whether it be spiritual, mental, physical, emotional, or perceived. Pain is pain, and we don't like it. So the world tells us to reduce, eliminate, or avoid it. How many pain pills, how many prescriptions, how many numbing activities, how many things do we do to eliminate pain in our lives? I'm telling you the world is wrong. We have to learn to embrace pain as a part of our path to success. And I'm not suggesting we put ourselves into unnecessary amounts of pain just for the sake of pain, but recognizing the proper ones between where we are today and where we want to be and viewing those as our stepping stones. Pain is defined as short-term, intermittent, a direct cause from something, and then typically healed after that direct cause is removed. Then what do we do as human beings? We screw it up with adjectives that we put in front of it, like acute and chronic. Acute maintains the definition, but chronic inherently changes it. Because it implies it's no longer short-term, it's no longer intermittent, and it persists even after that direct cause is removed. So let's stop calling that chronic pain, and let's call it what it is, suffering. Again, pain gets lots of attention. Whereas suffering, we don't even want to admit exists. And suffering often in these cases creeps up on us until sometimes the effects are irreversible. We don't like to admit that suffering exists, particularly when it's a direct result of our choices. But the precursor to change is acceptance. So until we can accept the state of where things are, we cannot begin to become who we want to be. So we're gonna actually walk through what this process looks like. We can embrace the pain of hitting the gym for 30 minutes every day to avoid the suffering of aches and pains of a sedentary lifestyle. We can embrace the pain of a difficult conversation with a loved one or spouse to avoid the suffering of being stuck in a loveless marriage that might end in divorce or being stuck in a marriage when we really want divorce. We can embrace the pain of the fit our kids are sure to throw by having them put down their mobile devices at the dinner table to avoid the suffering of years of lost meaningful connection and conversation that we'll never get back. As business owners, we can embrace the pain of firing our top salesperson that's contributing the most to top line growth to avoid the suffering of stagnant growth and losing all our other top talent because they're the greatest cancer in our culture. And the list goes on. This applies to everything in life. And so it's really about starting to understand and recognize it's not just discomfort, it's not, it's not just pain just for the sake of it. It's about understanding where these things are because I see, I believe that we all must choose our pain or our suffering will choose us. So acknowledge the suffering 
you wish to avoid is the first step. And everybody always responds to this, like, wait a minute, Brian, like, you're already having us talk about pain. Now you want us to think about suffering. We want us to sit in suffering and actually envision what this is. Yeah, I do. I want you to acknowledge the suffering you wish to avoid. What does that mean? It's the opposite to what you really want in life. So often when we actually think about what we want, our goals, where we're headed, what we want to accomplish, who we want to be, the people we want in our lives, the impact that we want to make, we often just focus on the positives. But we don't actually concrete in what would it look like if we didn't accomplish those things. What would the suffering look like in our lives? And it's really two sides of the same coin. It's actually more powerful when we connect to both because we understand the carrot and stick methodology real time in everything we do. So let me give you an example of this. I have a client, he's 38 years old. He moved 26 times before the time he was 18. 26 times before the time he was 18. He lived with his mom, his dad, his grandma, his aunt. Rotated between the four of them for 18 years of his life. Never went to the same school twice, never had the same set of friends twice. He had to learn how to survive on his own. He never felt worthy, never felt like he could give or receive love, didn't know what it felt like. But being on the road, going away from trouble, going away from every, every time anything got tough, he didn't have to worry about it for very long because his life was going to uproot and change in six months. Fast forward to today, he's married and has two beautiful girls. But I told you he's never learned how to give or receive love. Not even a little bit. Despite the fact that he's tried for a long time. Suffering for him is very clear. It's a world without his wife and his daughters in it. But what that means is that he also has to understand that who he is today is not the man that's going to guarantee that suffering will be avoided. So let's flip the script. He's got this vision of his wife and him sitting on their ranch in Texas when they're 80 years old in a swing bench, listening to the creaking, listening to the wind blow through the brush on their ranch as they look over their acreage. And the only thing breaking the silence is the laughter of his daughters and grandkids. Similar to what we walked through just a few minutes ago with this exercise, being able to envision what we want, we also have to be able to envision what we don't want. Because when he takes that image and he can burn it into his soul, the purpose becomes big, big enough to overtake the pains required for him to change to become the man, husband, and father that he's always desired. When he wakes up every single day and he realizes that the gap between where he is and where he wants to be is going to require a whole lot of change in him. It's not about him, his wife changing. It's not about his daughters adapting to what he is. It's he's the one who has to do it. Is his inability to feel, or is, is, is inability to give or receive love his fault? No. But is it his responsibility? Absolutely. Let me give you another example. This is a personal example, actually. There's a whole lot about my life and things that I've been through that we're not going to have time to unpack today, and you guys might not even care. But this particular thing is relevant to this topic. We are all products of our environments, emotional triggers, behavioral patterns. We all have things that we are not aware of, and we all have things that we can work on. There's a lot connected to my past and the way that I grew up, and when I shut off physical pain, I also shut off emotional pain, and there's a whole lot of stuff that's connected to that that we, just, we won't be able to get into today. 
but I've been with my wife for 14 years. When we lived together, when we moved in together, a side of me came out that I'm not proud of. A controlling side, potentially manipulative side, and I have a temper, right? So if I feel like I'm being triggered in some way around things that I find myself important, I can find myself in a position of actually getting defensive and then translating to anger and saying things that I don't like. I've never been somebody to break furniture. I've never been somebody to hit anybody. But do I have a loud, dominating, strong energy and voice? Absolutely, I do. I'm not proud of that. 10 to 14 years ago, there was a period in our relationship that just wasn't going to be effective. We knew that. I've invested and made changes. And who I am today is nowhere the man I was back then. But I left wounds. I left wounds with my own actions that I was unaware I was even making. To the point that if I even slightly can elevate my voice today, it triggers my wife and puts her right into an unsafe feeling place. So 14 years in, we're the most connected we've ever been. We're also the most insecure we've ever been. Because right now, as she's establishing who she is, who she lost some of it because of my actions, when she discovers who she is, we may or may not decide that we're going to be on this path together forever. I think we will. I believe we will. But the reason I tell you this is, suffering to me is no different than suffering for my client that I told you about. Suffering for me is a life without my wife and my kids. So even though I'm not the man I was 12 years ago, 14 years ago, I have to go way beyond what I would traditionally think I'd need to in terms of progress to make sure that I secure everything I want in my life. Guess what, that journey begins inside. I've gotta be the one to pay attention and embrace the pains to realize that I have healing I still need to do because anytime that defensiveness trickles up, anytime that control trickles up, it's a byproduct of my own emotional triggers. I've gotta embrace the pain to move through those myself and be holding who I am. So we have to acknowledge the suffering we wish to avoid. The second step is to identify the pains we tend to avoid and learn to embrace them. Again, this isn't about putting yourself in unnecessary amounts of pain. It's about identifying the ones between where you are today and where you want to be as important. I'm gonna use a personal example on this one as well. I told you about my arm. I don't have a tricep. My bicep is my gracilis for my leg. I don't have a lat in the left side of my back. I've got a curve in my spine because of the muscular imbalance that exists. 15 years ago, I started to realize that my normal everyday pain started to become debilitating. It transitioned from just normal chronic pain to pure suffering. It was impacting my quality of life. Way too young now, and I was certainly way too young then to just accept that that was gonna be my destiny. So I started to realize that if I could keep myself lean, if I could keep myself eating well, if I could keep my core strong, my abs, my back, if I could focus on stretching, if I could focus on percussion therapy, if I could do all these things that that, that pain was no longer suffering, it was just an everyday manageable pain. And I could show up and do what I needed to do. So I did what any one of us would do when we decide we're gonna go get healthy, and I went and joined a gym. And I went consistently for 30 days. And then I stopped going. Now that's where most people stop. And this isn't like, pat myself on the back, Brian, you're so cool, you didn't stop here. No, it's just that I had done the work in the first step because I knew the suffering I wished to avoid. I knew what the debilitating pain looked like. I knew how it impacted my life. I knew how it impacted my relationship, my business, everything that I was focusing on, and it wasn't positive. It wasn't an option for me to keep that because I'd already acknowledged the suffering I wished to avoid on that, which was I don't want debilitating pain that's gonna be suffering for the rest of my life. 
it was very clear that I had to ask myself one more question. Is it the pain of working out? Is it the pain of going to the gym? Is it the pain of lifting weights? Is it the pain of plyometric? Is it the pain of stretching that I'm avoiding? Or is it the anxiety I get in a crowded gym? Definitively the second. So often in life, we think that we're stuck. We think that we're scraping the surface of our potential. We feel like it's victim and we're a fate because we have the wrong strategy and tactics in our life. Well, if I just change this, I'll be free. If I just change this, I can grow up my business by 5%. If I just change this, then I can be happy. Strategy and tactics only get you so far. Period, end of story. They only get you so far. Now, there are people with crazy amounts of external success based on the way the world has defined success in big businesses, big money, and all those things. And by the way, nothing wrong with that. I told you, we built a $15 million business. I love making money. There's nothing wrong with that. But when I, all of a sudden you realize, right, that you're running in circles with people making six figures, seven figures, eight figures, many of them waking up miserable, and they think it's just the strategy and tactics in their life, it's not. It's usually a combination of emotional triggers, behavioral patterns, and environmental conditioning that keeps us in that self-defeating place. And until we can go through the process of moving those things from the unconscious to the conscious, the unaware to the aware, it's going to feel like we're victims. It's going to feel like we're fate. And it's going to feel like we have no influence or control over our destiny. If something's important enough to you, if you know the purpose is big enough to overtake the pain, if you put in the work to acknowledge the suffering you wish to avoid, you have to ask yourself an additional question when you stop. If you stop down a path that you think is what's going to get you where you want to go, ask yourself that additional question. How many of us have been in a position where we've made cold calls in our life? How many times have you looked at it and it's like that proverbial 500-pound telephone sitting in front of you? Right? I had a conversation not that long ago with somebody, really successful businesswoman. And we started to, she, she just has call hesitancy. She doesn't like to pick it up. So we started to break it down. Okay, so is it, is it conversations with other business owners that you struggle with or other business leaders? No. Is it asking the right questions to identify the gaps and what they maybe have in their business that you might be able to provide solutions for? No. Is it getting creative? and structured in the solutions that you might deliver them in a way that you think you can demonstrate enough value to separate yourself from, no. Okay, do you have any problem maintaining relationships with your client? No, like there was literally nothing that was preventing her from actually being able to pick up the phone. She was very conversational, she was very light. So we had to ask the question, is it the weight of the 500 pound telephone that you're struggling to pick up? Or is it something else? When we actually walked through the process with her, what we started to realize is that she had never actually had success the way she defined it, the way that she felt it in her life. She was conditioned to believe that she was perpetually gonna be a failure. And what we really got to the root of is that what was keeping her from picking up the phone is her fear of what it would look like if she was actually successful. What if I'm actually good at this? Could I handle it? Can I leverage and scale my business effectively enough to make sure that I can deliver on what I just told them? It wasn't about having the conversations, it's like, can we execute? If I'm as good as I think I am, will, will I be able to keep up with the workflow? And when she started to move through that, she started to realize that the pain she tended to avoid it had nothing to do with the weight of that telephone. In fact, it's feather light now. She can pick it up and make all the calls she needs. But how often in life do we not actually understand what's between where we are today and where we want to be and see it very clearly for what it is? Most often we blame it on the strategy and tactics that are in our lives versus the emotional triggers, behavioral patterns, and environmental conditioning that keeps us stuck. 
I could give you 15 other examples of this. But it's that important. The last step in this process is relatively simple, and then we're gonna transition the conversation to a different place. The last step is that we have to learn to establish this as a habit in all areas of our life. And when I say all areas of our life, I, I mean it. This is something that is going to require work holistically. You know, we hear this statement like, we need to lean into discomfort, get comfortable getting uncomfortable, or get comfortable getting uncomfortable. Discomfort's like the 5K to pain's marathon. I'm actually asking you to look at both, because pain is required. That's the interesting thing about pain, is it can't be measured independently of the person experiencing it. So drawing definitive conclusions about pain becomes very difficult, with one exception. We all experience pain. So again, we can choose our pain or our suffering can choose us. Establishing this as a habit, we need to change our language and the way we look at this. Most people respond whenever you're like, the idea of a new habit is like, oh God, seriously, this is gonna suck. I gotta find time, it's gonna cost me something, it's gonna take away from other stuff I care about. And even experts in habit formation talk about how every new habit has an upfront energy tax. Think about the language we use in habits, tax, expense, cost. It's gonna take away from something. Why don't we just flip that on its head? Why don't we start looking at new habits as an investment in our future self? An investment in realigning with who we are and who we're capable of being. So many of us start out in life with the strategy and tactics chasing the what. What house, what car, what amount of money, what external definition of success. And many of us reach it. But when you wake up and you run against those people that I talked about before who are miserable, it's because they've lost who they are in the process. The what killed who they were. And to realign at any time other than adolescence with who you are means shedding layers of what the world has told us. We'll unpack some of this, I'm sure, in the Q&A, because shame is something that I've dealt deeply with, and shame is the ultimate wolf in sheep's clothing. But when you can realign with the who, know exactly who you are, know exactly what you want in life, know exactly who you're doing it for, who you're trying to impact, then all the what's in your life become a manifestation of the who. Way more powerful. You start to move faster with less effort. But sometimes we're afraid of who we are. That's where some of those demons come into play. That's where those emotional triggers come into play. So establishing this as a habit is recognizing that we've got to view this as an investment in our future self. It's not a negative thing. The pain and the change is actually a good thing. The old adage, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Yeah, it's antiquated, but it's also a challenge of perspective because it causes us to see our challenges through a lens of meaning. And that's all I want you to do, is to start to recognize that all these things compound on each other. Now there's two things that often get in the way of us being exactly who we want to be, who we are, and it's fear and it's failure. Both fear and failure give us feedback both fear and failure hone our focus. And both fear and, I'm gonna say, the potential of failure are often fabricated. I like to say to my kids that all the greatest things in life are just on the other side of fear. 
fun, freedom, and fulfillment. So often in life, like we, fear is literally fabricated. We create these intellectual and emotional narratives most of the time that aren't true. Does anybody know in here, other than the fact that they both start with the letter F, the only thing that faith and fear have in common? Do you know? Undetermined future. So again, just like I believe we almost choose our pain or our suffering will choose us, do you want to choose to live in a position of faith or choose to live in a position of fear? Because it is, it's a choice. Doesn't mean it's easy to get yourself out of fear, but it's true. So I am going to unpack three different things for you with fears. Uh, because I, Dr. Susan Jeffers wrote a book called Feel the, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. And I think it's, it's one of the best books on fear that I've ever read. You see, we always say in our household that courage isn't the absence of fear, it's doing it anyway. Right, that's not my statement. It's, I'm sure we've modified and stolen that from somebody. But we often have to talk about that. We have to recognize that it's not about not being afraid. It's not about shoving fear down. It's about showing up and doing it anyway. But what she outlines is that there's three levels of fear. There's level one fears, which are those things that happen to us. Aging, becoming disabled, being alone, pandemics, loss of financial security. They happen to us. Change. Then there's level two fears. These are inner states of mind rather than exterior situations. So these are going to be things like being conned, success, helplessness, like feelings, emotional triggers. And then level three fear, this is what I love about how she outlines it. The level three fears are the root to all fear. And it's the single question. Can I handle it? You see, the reality of it is if you knew you could handle anything, you knew that no matter what came your way, you'd be fine, you could stand up on your own two feet and keep moving forward, what is there to be afraid of? But we fabricate fear. So if we know this, I want you all to just sit here right now and recognize that because you're here, because you're in this room, you're a survivor. Nobody gets through this life unscathed. Nobody. And I guarantee that each and every one of you in this room has been knocked down more times than you care to admit. But guess what? You're here, which means you've stood back up and you've kept moving forward. What we often forget is that our pasts don't necessarily determine our future. They can provide a perspective that allows us to center ourselves and recognize that we can do this. We can show up. We can keep moving forward. I can heal. I can overcome pain, because you're here, which means you've done it. That doesn't mean you're where you want to be. That doesn't mean you're who you want to be. That doesn't mean that you've totally healed, but you're here. So let's understand that fear is often fabricated. Fear often gives us feedback, and fear hones our focus. My son is seven, and he's on the autism spectrum. Very high functioning, many of you who wouldn't know the, the category may or may not even identify it. But what happens is anxiety and fear are two really, really big things for him. They can crush his soul. And, it, and it's all about fabricated realities. Right? So for him, we have to be very black and white. We have to give structure. We can help anticipate what's coming. We can really get ahead of it because if he understands what to expect, for the most part, he can understand and move through those moments that he doesn't, as long as he has the bigger picture. Well, he's always been like pretty physically gifted, which has been fun for me as a dad, because he just looks at something and decides he's gonna do it and then does it. He came up to me when he was three years old and said, Dad, I want my training wheels off. And I was like, are you sure, buddy? Like, you've only had your bike for like six months. He said, yeah, Dad, I'm good. He's, he's been speaking very articulately for a long time. I said, Dad, I'm good, I, I wanna do it. He said, I, I, the worst that's gonna happen is I'm gonna fall. 
okay, cool. Took off his training wheels, he started riding. I like to mountain bike. And so he obviously wants to do anything I'm doing. Well, at three, he was too young to mountain bike. But between three, four, five, and six, we started focusing on the fundamentals. We started looking at body position on the bike. We started looking at brake modulation. We started looking at where our pedals are positioned. We started looking at pedal strokes and making sure that we're not going to have pedal strikes if we're going to go over rocks. We started riding on dirt roads to be able to understand what an instable service can look like. We started going over bumps and rocks so that you could feel what the bumps actually would look like, how it would experience what it was going to do. We've got some hills by our house that aren't dirt, and we started getting him to pedal on that one-speed bike just to understand how do you strengthen your legs so that you can carry yourself up the hill. We started coming down the hill so that he could recognize that it's not about cramping down on our brakes, but it's about really understanding brake modulation and understanding what speed can look like and what fun can look like if we can overcome some of the different pieces. We literally did all of it because I told him, I'm not going to buy you a mountain bike. I'm not taking you on the mountain until you're ready. Because I knew for him it could be potentially catastrophic. So why I say all this is we all have different ways of processing fear. We all have different ways of, of processing through risk tolerance. That's okay. Understand what you uniquely need and give yourself the data and the variables to be able to understand and anticipate what's coming at you. So once you got all these things mastered, he was, about, he was six, so this was last, uh, about a year ago, I decided, okay, we're gonna go buy you a mountain bike now, because that was my deal with him. If you master all these things, and I don't have to prompt you on what to do, you can get your mountain bike. Go on and get mountain bike. Well, now we're going from a one-speed bike to a seven-speed bike. Now we're going from a bike that has a rear brake, uh, or a, a reverse brake on, on the uh, pedals, to one that has two up here, and he's got a, a freewheel on the back. Right, now we have suspension, slightly bigger tires, variables change. So I didn't take him on the mountain right away. We rode, we got really used to understanding what shifting gears would look like, particularly when we're climbing and coming down. We started to understand, okay, now that I've got a front and a rear brake that I can control with my hands, what does that look like? The bike is slightly different, so the weight distribution on the bike is gonna be different. And then we went out on the hill. I have one rule when we go mountain biking. Unless you're broken beyond repair, you will ride your bike in and you will ride your bike out. I guess the other rule is, uh, if we need to walk our bike up the hill, we can, but we're always gonna ride down. So with my son, we go out, and we start riding on trails, we start getting up, and he, he's moving, he's going. And he's getting it. He's starting to understand what it looks like to have dirt a little bit unstable, he's starting to be able to climb hills, he's starting to understand letting the bike do, do, do the work for him by shifting down, actually climbing up, he's having fun. Inevitably, he gets to his first hilltop. He, he summited it, he climbed it, he got the whole way up. But we have a pretty gnarly downhill right in front of us. He got stopped cold in fear. All the preparation, he was still stopped. So I got up next to him, we focused on breathing first, get in your body, pay attention to what's in here, calm the mind. That breathing technique that George walked you through has actually been studied by the SEALs. It's, it's the most effective technique for reducing the human stress response next to Valium. So with my son who's on the autism spectrum, getting him to breathe, getting him in his body is very effective. So we sit up at the top of the hill and start looking down. Now in mountain biking we always call it choosing your line, okay? But call it what you want, pick your path, choose your line. But it's like, okay, so I start walking through them. Let's pick our line. 
So we look down the hill and he's like, I'm gonna go this way, I'm gonna go around there, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn around this corner, this is, this is how we're gonna summit, I'm probably just gonna let myself roll. We start like mapping out, what does it look like? Then we start paying attention to the rocks and the boulders that are in the path. All right, so based on the line that I picked, what rocks and boulders are there that maybe I haven't seen? Or are they there and is, does my path need to change? Then we anticipate failure, because failure is expected. You're gonna fall, you're going to crash, it's just inevitable. So we need to anticipate where to fail if we're gonna fail. We can't always do that. But with mountain biking, if there's a cliff on one side, don't fall that way. Right? And just make sure in your head you know if I'm going down, all my weight leans this way so that I'm safe. And then at some point, when you've walked it all through, you just gotta let go of the brakes and let it roll. Now with mountain biking, what's interesting, same thing with racing cars, it's not about cramping down on the brakes, it's about brake modulation. Because when you cramp down on the brakes, particularly with your front brake with your mountain, you're gonna go what they call endo and you're gonna flip your bike. Thinking you're making yourself safer, but you're cramping down on those brakes and all of a sudden you crash because you cramp too hard. By the way, this is no different than life. Pick your line, anticipate the obstacles, know which direction you can't fail. And then at some point, move from fear to faith and let go of the brakes and let it roll. And all the greatest things in life are on the other side of fear. Fun, freedom, and fulfillment. Period. The more you do it, the more you have to anticipate that stuff. Because it becomes second nature. And that's the idea of habit. Failure is something that we need to pay attention to. Because I get asked all the time, how far do I go? How many times do I fail before I give up? And I think it's really important for us to understand in failure, there's multiple ways to look at it. So we have to understand, are we failing along our path to getting to our goal or are we failing at our goal? What are the goals that you are focused on? And are they small incremental goals? Or is it a big picture goal that we feel like we're failing at? And then you have to ask a really important question, which is, is it the right goal? How badly do we want it? So when we actually think through failure from that lens, are we failing along our path to our goal? Or are we failing at our end goal? It's a really important distinction. Because whether it's a long-term goal or even a somewhat intermediate, there's gonna be little incremental steps along the way that we're going to fail. So let's just call it an annual business plan. And you wanna grow your business by a half million dollars this next year. And you think about how do I break this down into quarters or sections of the year, because that's how we do things. We, we focus on budgeting, we focus on activity flow, we focus on how do we transfer deals, keeping clients, making sure we're not losing revenue off the backside. But if we say we're gonna write a half million dollar growth number in this year, and we go through the first quarter and we only, and we only wanna write, and we only write 50, have we failed? Many people start getting down on themselves and they lose sight of the bigger picture. If you're three months into a 12 month goal and you've only written 50, is it the compound effect that's gonna get you where you need to go? Or what feedback were you given in that first quarter? That said, I'm either targeting the wrong customers, I have the wrong language involved, I've got the wrong solutions, maybe our team isn't able to actually execute when we have the pipeline full enough. Start asking the right questions to what does failure actually mean? And starting to be able to move through that path. Now what goals are we focused on? Right? Are they incremental or are they long-term goals? Again, this whole idea of it, if you've got a team of salespeople, 
do you want to start getting down on them after the first quarter? Or is it, hey, you're going to be growing by X amount through this year, and I need to find a way to elevate and empower you and make sure that we remove as many resources as possible. Because again, failure, just like fear, hones our focus, allows us to see things more clearly, but it also gives us feedback if we're listening. So we have to pay attention to those things. And then really asking, is it the right goal? I think so often people give up on something because it's not truly connected and resonating at the deepest level that it needs to. When I say that, that we want to impact a billion lives by 2045, I feel that in my soul. Every single day I wake up, I think about it. I know what it looks like. I've envisioned it. I understand it. And I also know that over the next 24 years, there's going to be more failures than I can count along my way. It's not going to happen alone. It's not going to happen easy. But I have to pay attention to every single failure because it gives me feedback and it hones my focus. And it's going to allow us to be targeted in the right direction. For that client I told you about that has this vision of what it looks like when they're 80, that purpose is big enough to overtake every pain required. Because he understands that, he knows he's going to fail as he has to turn into dealing with his shame, his self-worth issues, learning how to have vulnerability and authenticity in his relationships so that he can actually bring things together and show up as the man, husband, and father that he wants. That goal is really fucking big because he doesn't want to lose everything that's important to him. So are you writing down goals just because they sound good? Are you writing down goals just because they protect you? Or are you writing down goals because you feel it in your soul? I'm not saying everything you're going to feel in your soul, but the more you do, the more in alignment with who you are, your thought process, your vision, your goals are, the less you're going to have to work for it because it's going to come into your life. Trust me when I tell you that. I've got one final story and then we'll go into some Q&A. If you haven't noticed, I talk a lot about clients and I also talk a lot about my family. My wife and my kids are, are, are a pure gift. And our daughter is five. She's our redhead, blue-eyed little unicorn. Like she is a ray of sunshine. If she came into this room, she would come up and talk to every single one of you and I guarantee leave you feeling like you're riding high. She's a gift. And her joy in life, who she is, is literally interacting with people, making them feel good, giving them kisses, giving them love, figuring out ways that she can help. She's been like that since we can ever remember. That's, that's her joy. That's what she likes, feeling connection. We learned two years ago, about, that she's hearing impaired in both ears. We missed it. She passed her newborn screenings, found out in preschool, and all of a sudden, like the audiologist, she's got really profound hearing loss. She's got 60% loss in one ear and 40% in the other. The audiologist told her, you know, I asked the audiologist when she actually told all this, I said, so it probably helps because you've got a really loud dad, right? And she said, actually, it does. For whatever reason, the tone of my voice is within the range that she has almost perfect hearing. So she was actually benefited from her ability to feel connected and have that conversation. And we come from a very loud household. But as she got older and she started going to school, we started to notice different things that we weren't picking up on earlier. Language development, even some social stuff for this highly social kid, which was so different because we had got a kid on the autism spectrum, which is not social, right? So it's like that we had to adjust to that. But anyway, we, we started to realize that it's like, okay, we got to go through this path of getting her hearing devices. So we did, and, and as with all change in life, pain is associated. There's sometimes a pain for her to put in, 
They sometimes cause literal physical pain in her ears. Sometimes it's a pain because she recognizes and is very aware now of she's the only one in most rooms wearing hearing aids. And so that's very hard. And so what we've had to do is really be able to use this idea of embracing pain to avoid suffering to empower our own little five-year-old to recognize the pain she needs to embrace to become who she is. She can be alone in a, or she can be in a room without hearing aids and be alone and isolated but connected or she can have her hearing aids in and not be alone and isolated, connected and a part of everything that's happening. She can not wear them in her ears because they're causing discomfort and then again, miss all of the meaningful interaction that she desires. Her emotional intelligence is very high, fortunately, but what she often needs is the context to fill in what she's reading on people. Crazy to watch this little five-year-old read bodies and people in a way that I've only seen a handful of people do, but she needs, the, she needs the hearing to be able to do that. So it's become really, really apparent to me, now as a father, why it's so important for us to do these things. You see, the idea of seeing our daughter grow up, grow up without the use of her hearing, without functional hearing and connecting in the way that she so deeply desires is a source of great potential suffering for both my wife and I. Seeing my son grow up with autism and seeing him feel socially isolated, feeling like he can't be who he is because the world tells him he's not good enough because he's different and doesn't fit in the box is an idea of deep and profound suffering for my wife and I. So we will ourselves, day in and day out, to do what's necessary, to do what's tough, to embrace the pains required to ultimately strengthen and heal our two kids. The idea of seeing me grow up without the use of my left arm was a source of great potential suffering for my parents. So they willed themselves, day in and day out, to do what was necessary, to do what was tough, to embrace the pains required to ultimately strengthen and heal me. And to my knowledge, this is not a decision that they've ever regretted. In fact, I like to envision that when my little five-year-old girl runs across the room with just that infectious laugh, that belly laugh, and she runs across and I can pick her up and raise her up into my arms and just have her release that laugh into the world, that they not only experience tremendous joy, they not only put themselves in a position where they avoid suffering, but they feel free in the decisions that they made. I know I do, and each and every one of you can too. Embrace pain, avoid suffering, gain freedom. Thank you. Yeah, it's like um, in, inner dialogue, inner states of fear. So it's not things that happen to you, it's more feelings, like helplessness and you know emotional triggers and those types of things. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yes, Kate. Oh. I've recently realized that I like have incredibly high pain tolerance, and so I've ignored and pushed down a ton of it, a lot of emotional pain. So like, is there anything you'd recommend of like raising awareness to embrace it more? Because I'm not afraid of pain but I've definitely blocked out huge chunks of it. I'm, I'm gonna ask uh, everybody indulge me to go on a slightly longer answer for this. Because this is something that'll hopefully be relevant to everybody and it's not something that's, um, 
a one-sentence answer. I didn't realize when my accident happened, in fact, I didn't realize until far later in life that when I shut off physical pain, I also shut off emotional pain. When the demands of your environment exceed your ability to cope, your body, your mind, your emotions will do whatever they have to do to survive. It's just what happens. And so what happened for me, and I'm gonna give you three different segments on this, and I'm not gonna go super deep on it, I'll just hit the tops of the waves, because I think it's, it is about awareness, okay? Everything begins and ends with awareness. I didn't wanna be a victim, I didn't wanna be the center of attention, I didn't wanna be put in boxes, I didn't wanna be confined, I didn't want anybody telling me what I could or couldn't do based on their lens of what they could do in my position. So I built a very strong external narrative. I'm good, I'm strong, I'm capable, I don't need anybody's help. And it served me very well for a long time. And it's still a huge portion of my own wiring in the way that I believe. Mental toughness is critical. The error with mental toughness is that mental toughness can lie to us. And they can be inaccurate narratives. So fast forward, I'm 20 years old. I've never let this stop me from anything. I was snowboarding. I went down. I rebroke my arm. I instantly knew it was broken. Wave, wave down, the, this is a funny part, I have to dig digress for one second. I wave down the ski patrol. And he comes over, he's like, what's up? I said, I just broke my arm. And he goes, no, you didn't. I was like, no, no, yeah, I did. I said, it's a really complicated scenario. I've got a really high pain tolerance. I know what's going on. I'm staying centered because I have to, right? He goes, there's no way you're sitting here talking to me and your arm is broken. I said, trust me. And he goes, why don't, why don't, why don't we take off your jacket and take a look? Take off your jacket. It was a compound fracture, so my sleeve was covered in blood. And he goes, I think you broke your arm. <laughs> like, no fucking shit, dude. So, um, so anyway, fast forward to that. What happened is I went through seven surgeons who were afraid to touch me because of medical malpractice. I went 10 months with my arm hanging by my side with the bone broken and wiggling inside for 10 months at the risk of losing my arm in any moment. And now all of a sudden I'm re-experiencing a lot of what I did as a kid, but now without the guidance and structure, right, and the, the fog that I had when I was a kid because I didn't need to think, now all of a sudden I had to, to navigate. I realized the power of our narrative in that moment. Because I had a lot of friends, I had a lot of family, nobody was there. And it wasn't because they didn't love me, it wasn't because they didn't want to be there for me, it's because I said I'm good, I'm strong, I'm capable, and I don't need anybody's help. They figured if I needed it, I'd ask for it. And in the time when I was most vulnerable in my life, I didn't have the courage to ask for it. That whole next period of my life shifted towards vulnerability and authenticity. Right? I told you early in the talk that I believe those are the two pieces of glue that bind human connection. So it's all about human connection, because if I have all these people in my life, but I'm not clearly connected to them, that's not their problem, that's mine. So I had to really evolve myself to get to that place, and I did it really well. Fast forward a little bit more, I had a really rare and extreme case of growth hormone deficiency that I, I'm under treatment now on, and I'm good, but it affected my intellect and my, uh, my energy. I didn't feel like who I was, and it rattled me to the point that I started to feel in a way that I hadn't in a long time playing really actively with my daughter, and she leans over, she puts her arm around my neck, gives me a kiss on the cheek, and she says, Daddy, I love you. This was three years ago, four years ago. And I broke down in tears. The first time in my life that I was actually aware that I was breaking down in tears because of joy. And I started to ask that if I'm not feeling joy over here, then I'm clearly not feeling pain, despair, sorrow, fear over here, and that means I'm living in this box. I started to realize that human connection without emotion isn't really human connection. I'd mastered it from a strategic and tactical standpoint. And I was good at it. But it wasn't actually the reciprocation of it. There's a transfer of energy with relationships that happens in those moments. And so for me, and this is the long way of answering your question, there have been multiple moments in my life that have shaped and conditioned who I am 
and there are lots of emotional triggers that I've been playing to. I was deeply affected by shame, deeply, for a whole variety of reasons that I'm not gonna unpack. But shame has two talk tracks. You're not good enough and you're not worthy. It's where most people live. I'd be lying if I didn't have moments that I lived there, but that's not my predominant narrative. The other one is when you shut this down, you show up in the arena and you're ready to go to battle, like who the fuck do you think you are? Who are you to live so big? Who are you to have so much success? Everything major I'd ever done in my life, I felt I need to apologize for. And I've done some really fucking cool shit that nobody ever has, still doesn't know about, and I'm okay with that. But my point in saying that is, I guarantee you, there is an emotional trigger or behavioral pattern that has conditioned that. When I started to feel with my daughter, I started to put myself more into my body, and I started to notice how much I was actively suppressing emotion out of pure survival, and I didn't even know I was doing it. So take toll in those moments. I guarantee you that you feel something. Does it manifest into emotion? Do you allow it to move through you? Do you allow yourself to understand what it means and how it manifests in your life? That's probably what's missing right now. But the fact that you asked the question knows, tells me that you know exactly what you're feeling, and you probably feel more deeply than you give yourself credit for, or you allow anybody in the world to see. So sit in those moments. Ask the questions about what are those triggers. Is it about what's right in front of you? Or is it about something that happened 25 years ago that's causing you to snap at your spouse because you loaded, they loaded the dishwasher wrong? We are literally triggered by things that we don't even pay attention to until we go through a process of starting to pause in those moments, breathe, and determine that we can choose a different path. Hopefully that was helpful. Thank you. Stop talking again. <laughs> oh, here, and then Larry. Brian Bogert. Name and business, Brian. Brian Bogert. The Brian Bogert Companies. And what is your business? Uh, so human behavior performance coach, speaking, we've got group coaching, uh, a lot of corporate facilitation, but we've got, I'm a serial entrepreneur, so I'm, I'm in, the, the Brian Bogert Companies are holding company for all of the entities. It's also the external facing one for speaking and coaching. Um, but basically everything that I'm involved in at this point is some vehicle to drive towards that billion life. So I have two questions, um, but before I ask those, I fucking love you, man. I, oh, I do, I thank really you. do, and I mean that platonically, of course, but. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't judge you if it wasn't platonically. Yeah. I mean, it's okay. Um, my first question, right, <laughs> right, right. So uh, my first question is very simple. Um, when are you coming on the Data Edge podcast to talk about all this stuff? So we can figure that out. And, um, but m my question is this. Um, I'm a father of four boys. I host Dad Edge Podcast. We also have a mastermind specifically for men. Okay. And fathers and husbands and all that. Most men come to our mastermind because they want to create a legendary marriage. They want more patience. They want a better mindset. Here's where I struggle, and you know this. Um, I feel so much of what you say and what, you're, what you believe in, and I know it's be true because I've lived obviously through my own turmoil. Nothing kills my heart more than anything to see a man that we work with give up on himself. Yeah. To the point where I want to sit there and tell him everything that you just said, into it, but I want him to hear me and it kills me that he doesn't. Mm -hmm. And there's that part of me that's like that whole shame, I'm not good enough, and I walk away from conversations like that, and I can't ever, there's a part of me that's like, could I, I should have done more. I could have done more. He's giving up on himself because 
maybe what we're doing isn't good enough. So it's like this deep core within me. I haven't fully gotten through that. Yeah. What advice do you have for that? For the man that's giving up or for you? Did you notice the first question you asked yourself when you realized that somebody was going to give up? What was the first question you, you just said to yourself? Or the statement? I should have done more. I'm on a mission to remove should from our language. Because should is a shame-based word, and it implies that whatever you're doing isn't good enough. I love that you followed it with a word on could. I think that's what we need to constantly pay attention to, is replacing should with could or would. What could I do differently next time? What would I do differently next time? What would I have done differently if I had different variables? I identify with your pain, because I view myself as somebody who heals. I help people put words to their pain. I help them understand what and how to move through it. And often, you know, my, one of my business partners and I describe ourselves as heart surgeons without a blade, because we pull people's hearts out fix them up into a better version of themselves, let's let them sit there and see it, and then we put it back in a better version. But we're not always successful. What you have to realize is that everything begins and ends with you on two sides. Meaning, the clients that you're working with, everything begins and ends with you, meaning them. So if they're in a position where they are not able to move through it, that's not your fault. You're doing everything you can to guide them, to facilitate them, to give them the tools they need to stand up and have the clarity in the areas of their life that they need to move through. There are some people who are currently suffering so badly they can't see the light. And they don't understand that they're actually going to be able to move through it and that this will end. Something that I'm very aware of and I'm very okay with is I prepare all of my clients for that. It's going to feel better and then it's going to feel way fucking worse for a while. And then you're going to have ups and downs. But them giving up is on them, and that's also internal healing that they need. I would also tell you that the times when I guilt myself, when I shame myself, when I beat myself up for not being as effective with the client, that's about me, it's not about them. You know, what I described that I'm going through with my, my wife right now, I could sit here in one hand and say, look, I've made all this progress, and I, I, I have. There is no damage, I mean, there hasn't been damage in 10 years, right? There have been moments. But, the wounds are so deep, and I don't know how long they'll be, it'll take to repair them, or if they will be repaired. I believe they will, which is why I'm on the path. But because I'm so laser focused on that, right, it's easy for me to look at clients who are giving up or doing something else and be like, ah, what is my resistance to that? Why do I have resistance? Why do I feel like I failed them when I've poured my soul into them and given them everything I can? So I think for you, I would go inside. I would ask the question, why is it that I'm giving myself all of this heartache because of somebody else's inability to move through life themselves, because it's not your fault. You're giving them a tool, a path, that they wouldn't have had otherwise. So I think everything begins and ends with us, and I think often when we face resistance, too often we look outside for answers, more often we need to look inside for clarity. B, you need to stop, man. Just stop right now, goodness gracious. Um, I, I love you, Brad, by the way. Oh, dude, I was about to say the same thing, man. I love you, man. In the brief period that I've known this man, he's changed my life with very just brief conversations that we've had. We won't go into how we met, but thank you, man. Thank you for being here and just thank you for being awesome. I got you, bro. Um, so, you know, we talk about embracing the, the pain. You know, 
I immediately go to, how, how can you make this habitual, <laughs> right? Um, and you talk about change, you know, like th there's a narrative that's playing in our head that goes into the emotional triggers and stuff like this. How do you change the narrative? I mean, how do you change the narrative so that it can actually become habitual to embrace the pain? Because I think the knowledge is great. And I think it sounds great to all of us, but it's like, how yeah, do how I do I do it? How, how, do, how do I apply it? You know yeah. what I mean? Because um, at the end of the day, it's going to be different. I mean, now that we all have the knowledge, but it's going to be time to kind of put this stuff into practice. Yeah, so I think it's a great question. You hit on something really subtle in there that I did not talk about, but is a, a really strong belief system for me. Um, and, and it's actually a belief system that I'm trying to break down in the external world because I told you I bought into the mental side of it. I created an intellectual narrative. The intellectual narrative is only part of the story and it's not always real. In fact, often it's not. So mental toughness for mental toughness sake is great. What I'm gonna encourage everybody in this room to do, because this is where you start to move through this concept a little bit easier, the ones who truly get unlocked, the ones that truly reach the highest level of performance. And I don't mean like, oh, they've got the biggest businesses, although they might, but like the highest level of their individual performance, who they are, showing up, and everything is in alignment and in sync and their life is self-regulating, right? Like that's the goal. We want it so that we know so clearly that we know what fits and what doesn't. We know the pains to embrace. We intuitively sense it, we feel it, our bodies, our minds give us feedback. Most of us are hardwired to operate based on either intellect or emotion. You all know who I'm talking about. My wife is hardwired to operate off of emotion. We'll drive by roadkill and she starts crying. PETA commercials come on and I'm like, I, I literally am like, what? Like, it's a coyote that got hit four weeks ago. Like, why? Like, its soul is long gone. Why are we crying about this? Okay, but she feels it and I'm not. I'm on the intellectual side. We need to, one, understand where we start and where we're hardwired. Two, we need to really understand what are the narratives that our hardwiring has told us. What are the truths and what is our view of the world based on those narratives? And then ask yourself, are they true? The other thing that we have to start to do is to connect the mind and the body, the mind and the heart. Because until we can combine intellectual and emotional narratives and understand how to regulate between the two, which one is true in the moment, which one is lying to us in the moment, which one we need to lean into, which one we need to actually use in this scenario, we're always gonna be limited. Because we're only operating off of half of what we are and who we are and how we're showing up. When you connect your mind and your heart, you start to be able to think about your thinking. You start to be able to feel your feeling. You start to be able to think about your feeling and you start to be able to feel your thinking. I know it sounds fucking crazy, but I'm telling you, I've done the work. A lot of it starts in silence. So for me, Breaking down this whole process was a really regimented process around forcing myself to sit in silence for five minutes a day for over two years with an inability to do it because I am twitchy as fuck. I can't sit still. I have so much energy. I like, have to find a place to put it. Sitting for five minutes in stillness and allowing my thoughts to just like flow through me or whatever the fuck meditation meant to me at that time, right? Like it was literally painful. But then I started to push the envelope and I started to get myself out of my body and I started to have clarity moments and I started to see things much more clearly. I started using sensory deprivation tanks. I started really being able to leverage different elements. One of my greatest focuses right now is raising my highest level of consciousness and that doesn't mean my thinking. That means allowing wisdom to flow through me instead of having to access knowledge to deliver in the moment. And when you do that, it starts to actually happen. I have, I've been working with a meditation coach for over a year. She broke down for me. Concentration, meditation, visualization, there's three different components. I practice this for each one. It's like anything, you strengthen the muscle. 
The other side of that though is, just like in the gym, your muscles don't grow in the gym, they grow when you rest. The other equation that I had is that stress equals growth. The more I put on my plate, the more I shoved down, the more I, like, the more I lifted, in the, the, more I lifted in, the, in the gym, the more calls I made in the office, the more people I talked to, the more stress I could put, like the more I could handle in terms of activities for my family, the more I would grow. And that worked really well for a long time, but I was also sleeping three hours a night. And I was fucking crushing it until I wasn't because I crashed and burned hard. So then I started studying peak performers, and they've done studies that have looked at intermittent peak performers and sustained peak performers in business, athletics, and sports, longitudinally. And what they start to discover is the only difference between intermittent peak performers and sustained peak performers is that the sustained peak performers treated rest as important as their training. So the goal, <laughs> so, so the new equation is stress plus rest equals growth. And we have to be able to balance and regulate between intellect and emotion so that we can be whole to who we are. And I know that that's abstract and esoteric and a lot of things that I said, brother, you and I can go deep on this because you know how to get a hold of me, but yeah. That's how, you, I mean, that's how you do it. You start to move through this so you see things clearly. Yeah, hey, Brian. Um, thanks, man. I, I, um, I found myself thinking about my son a lot as you were talking. Uh, he's about seven years old, and he's, uh, he's a pretty bright kid, uh, and he's going through some challenges right now. He's, um, well, he's, he's in a phase where I find that he's sort of being overcome and overtaken by fear. Yep. Just in the last few months, he's had this thing happen where he, 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 he can't be in a room alone at the moment. And I know some of this is just, this is what, these are some things that kids go through, but I find myself really struggling as a parent to, to impart things like what you're talking about on my kids. So I'd love to get a little bit of a glimpse on how you try to teach this to your kids and see if I can take some of that myself. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I think a lot of it's in the questions. And then how do you move through those questions? So my son right now, he's having a really difficult time, so I'll, I'll tell a real-time story in a way that I help process it so that hopefully this can help you. Um, he, we, we had a big debate when he entered into kindergarten over whether or not going to a school that was more predominantly focused on autism or going to a more streamlined main school was gonna be better for him. And a big goal that we had was to get his IEP all dialed in to make sure that we understood really clearly like the support services that he need. And so we went through the traditional route and it worked really well for him because he had a kindergarten teacher whose emotional intelligence was off the charts. And so she really spent the time and energy getting to know who he was because neurologically he's wired different. Coming into first grade, that's also the age where kids start to go from just like playing to now all of them starting to like have some sense of self-awareness and external narratives that then they already in first grade start layering on top of people, right? So um, I look for ways to allow my kids to borrow my courage but I also look for ways that I can help them realize that whatever makes their heart happy is all that matters. Really hard to do, because the voices of the world are often louder than our internal voices, and they're often louder than even I can make my voice inside the house. And I only get so much time with them, okay? So with my son, we've always focused with both of our kids on getting in their bodies and communicating what they're feeling, what they're experiencing, like their perspective, and he's now starting to advocate for himself really well. So right now, he's getting, he's getting bullied. He's getting bullied in school, because he's the different kid. He's the different kid on the playground. He has difficulty with um, social barriers, so he's always up in, in people's business. He's very physical, he's very aggressive, so it can turn kids off, right? He's also 
highly intelligent, so he doesn't totally connect with some of his peers, but he desires deeply to be accepted for who he is and to be a kid and to have fun and friends and relationships. He's been getting stomach aches going to school because he doesn't want to go and he's already started to communicate that kids at school are telling him that who he is isn't good enough and that he needs to change who he is and that he needs to stop being so loud or he needs to stop doing this and it's like and it's now starting to affect his confidence and it's fabricating into fear. He's asking questions in our house like what if I never wake up and can find a wife? What if I don't ever have friends that are going to like see me for who I am? Literally, right? Well, I'm, I'm one of the guys on the planet that helps people become who they are. And so I have to really focus inside. And so I have to ask situational questions, like what led to this? What happened in this conversation? Also to help him understand what true friendship looks like. Because he now has friends that are telling him to go do something that's getting him in trouble because they're little fucking pricks and think they're funny. And he's impressionable and thinks that, why would a friend have me do something that could get me in trouble? So every single day he's afraid because he's trying to figure out, like, how do I navigate this? So sometimes it's getting context first and then figuring out what narrative to layer over it. So I'll give you two examples in the last month that I've done and then something that happened the other day. He loves mohawks. I didn't have a mohawk two months ago. I've never had a mohawk in my life. He wanted a mohawk. He goes, Dad, can I have a mohawk? Yeah, yeah, dude, like, cool, like, let's do it. So I shave his head into a mohawk. Within two days, he was asking me to shave it off. I said, why? He goes, well, people just don't seem to like it. Seems like people have an opinion about it. And I said, I don't, I don't care. Does it make your heart happy? Yeah, that, that's all that matters. Another day goes by, he's like, Dad, I really want to get rid of it. I said, okay, buddy, like, how, how does it make you feel? Like, again, we got him in his body. We got him processing his own emotions. He's like, it hurts. It feels like I can't be who I am. It feels like, you know, I like it, but nobody else likes it. So what, do I, what am I supposed to like? Like, where and how am I supposed to navigate through this? So I said to him, I was like, would it make you feel better if I shaved my head into a mohawk? He goes, you would do that? I was like, yeah, dude. I'll shave my head into a mohawk. I let him borrow my courage. Because I don't really fucking care what anybody thinks about me. I mean, truthfully, like, if all of you were like, this guy's a piece of shit, like, I would care if I didn't deliver value. But if you, like, didn't like me because of my mohawk, fuck off. I don't really care. <laughs> right? Because this is who I am. The secret behind that is I actually borrowed courage from him because I've always wanted a mohawk and I didn't have the balls to do it until it was bigger than me. Okay? I'll give you one other example and then I'm going to finish with one more thing because, again, I, I try to give enough context and not just brush off answers. Um, Gender roles on autism are, are, are not traditional. Nothing is really wired traditional. So I say this not to defend one way or another, but it's just, right, my son grows up in a house with a really strong female energy. My wife is an extremely strong energy, like gorgeous, beautiful. My daughter is huge energy. They like pretty things. They like to paint nails. And he's always liked painting nails with them. I know a lot of men who paint their nails. It's not something that's ever made my heart happy. And so he's been getting in his head. He's like, Dad, how come other men don't paint their nails? It's like, well, it's probably not something that makes their heart happy. Or it does, and they're just afraid to show it. So like, dude, do, you do you. Like, I don't care. But it would get to the point where he'd paint his nails with his mom and his sister, and within two days, he would have scratched them all off because going to school, kids were not happy about it. So about three weeks ago, a month ago, I was like, you know what? Like, he's feeling down on himself. I think there's an opportunity here to like make an impact. 
I've been asked for seven years if I would paint my nails. And I've said no every time. For what good reason? I don't know. Probably my own resistance. So a month ago, I said to my wife, why don't you give us both a pedicure? And my son didn't know what was happening. He came in and my wife was doing my toenails. And he got the biggest grin on his face. And he goes, are we doing pedicures? And I was like, yeah, dude. Do you want to match your, you your toes to mine? He's like, yeah. So he goes and he does it. And like he, it brought so much joy to his soul. And later in the night, he said, Dad, did you do that just for me? I said, honestly, I did. You know, I said, I don't want you to feel that way. I said, but I did. I said, because I know it's important to you, and I want you to feel like you've got permission to wear toenail polish if you want to wear it. Who cares? I don't care. I said, it doesn't make my heart happy. But again, another little secret, I've never tried it. I fucking love toenail polish on my nails. <laughs> my wife just went out and bought five new colors. Like, and, and he and I are going to do that. It's like, it's cool, but guess what? He's had fingernail polish and toenail polish on his hands and feet for three weeks and hasn't taken it off. It's the first time he's never picked it off in two days. So my wife two days ago says, go give him a pep talk because he's like really getting into his head. So I did. And I discovered that there's three areas that I need to improve. He's struggling because I'm not showing up the way I need to today. And it was really clear in that moment. As aware as I am, as intentional as I am, as all these awesome things that I'm proud of that I do, I don't see everything. But I had an opportunity to give him a pep talk and ask the right questions. And so he's now a part of my morning routine every single day. He comes out to my, my casita. We've got a part of our morning routine. I get him in his body. We breathe. We do affirmations. We've done I am statements with both kids since the time they were tiny. His, four, his kindergarten teacher was blown away because they did an exercise when they were four. And she's like, you won't even believe what just happened. She said, we always do the string of questions, and our immediate answer is the response. And she said, the last one we do is I am. She said, you won't even believe what happened. I said, what happened? She goes, he said, I'm the manifestation of my thoughts. I'm strong. I'm powerful. I'm kind. All these things that you She's like, I've never seen a four-year-old do that. And my wife was like, well, his dad you know, kind of does that for a living. <laughs> but I go and I sat with him. And I, what he needed to hear in that moment is that who he is is perfect. He doesn't need to change anything about who he is for me, for his mom, for his sister, for anybody. Who he is is perfect. We are born as the most bright, authentic, burning light we will ever fucking be. And in the world, parents, teachers, coaches, employers start layering all these things on us. You should do this. You shouldn't do that. You should be this. You should be that. You should chase this amount of money. It's no wonder we get lost and confused and wake up one day miserable. We've been told our whole lives that what we do isn't good enough. For a week, he's been walking around telling people, not telling people, telling me who I am is perfect. He's come home bright, excited, light every single day since school because we gave him a narrative that's louder than the narrative of the kids. And he's able to come home every day. He talked to me last night. He said, Dad, when do you get home? I want to do my morning routine again with you on Saturday. I was like, buddy, we're all in. We're all in. I would say ask the right questions, figure out what their narrative is, and figure out the narrative that you want them to have, and just be a loud voice, because that's what they need. Thank you, sir. Everybody, please just give him the warmest, most loving, giving round of applause ever. listening to another episode of the mind of george show please make sure you subscribe on your favorite channel that you listen to whether it's in the car on your run or in front of the television 
make sure you leave a review to help other people know how much you love the show and quite frankly help me know how much you love the show because I read them all. And if you want five minute daily insider nuggets on business, marketing, leadership, mindset, or any other tool that you would need to build and scale your company, make sure you register for my invite only newsletter. I call it the Lightkeeper Lessons. I hold nothing back here and I share everything that works for me, my friends and mentors, and thousands of my students around the world to thrive in life and keep our lighthouses shining brightly. We will eventually be charging for this, but for now, for you, because you're listening to the podcast, it's free. So if you want to sign up, go to www.lightkeeper.club, fill out the application, and then check your inbox because it's magic. You actually have to open the emails to get the gifts inside. Otherwise, you can get access to my Relationships Beats Algorithms Facebook community and other free resources on the website. So just go to www.mindofgeorge.com and I'll see you in the next episode.